Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. We've been taking the Lord's Supper at various times, whether it's after the sermon, as a climax to what we've heard this morning, we've taken it before to prepare our hearts to hear the Word. And as we've been making our way through Exodus, we come to Exodus 32, maybe one of the most well-known chapters in the whole book of Exodus. So this morning we will be looking at the first 14 verses, or I'll be reading the first 14 verses. So would you stand with me out of respect and reverence for God's Word as I read Exodus 31, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. 
And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, that your church might be built and that the earth would be filled with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And the Lord has directed that we will just cover one point this morning. So if you're taking notes, feel free to use all of the blank spaces as I go over point one, because that's all that we'll get through. As we live our lives, we come to expect that mountaintop experiences don't last forever. All good things must come to an end. The times we feel good, the times we feel great, and perhaps the times that we feel almost invincible are inevitably met with the reminder that those feelings, those experiences, and those thoughts don't last forever. We again meet difficulty and hardship. We again meet the reality of living in a fallen world with the curse of sin and death that is upon us in our world. And maybe we are confronted sometimes with the problem that it's not so much the world out there that is so troublesome, but that there's a problem that still resides here within us, within our own hearts. In the book of Exodus, we have just been up on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai with Yahweh and Moses. We have just been listening to how the Lord was making a way for His presence to dwell in the midst of His people. We have just been hearing about how God would graciously condescend to be among them so that they could worship Him and know Him. We had just heard about the divinely appointed rest He wanted to give them so that He could sanctify them and make them a holy people, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. We have just reached the climax of Moses' mountaintop experience, which, which should elicit such joy and thankfulness that we would exclaim, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We know, however, as we have read God's word, there is a pattern that needs to be broken. And here we see this pattern again. If we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God created the world in six days on the seventh day. He rested. He saw everything that he had created, and behold, it was very good until it wasn't. It was good until Adam and Eve were deceived into believing God wasn't good. 
So after the climax of God creating and resting, we have the fall of mankind. And things go from bad to worse. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence, so he sent a flood and was going to start again with Noah and with his family. A mountaintop experience. Here is the ark that, Moses, or that Noah had built resting on Mount Ararat. Noah and his family exit the ark, and it seems like, if, like they've hardly taken a step out of the ark before they sin again. So what do we expect after this mountaintop experience in Exodus 31? What is the pattern? The pattern is to quickly go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. To go from God's glory, perfection, and holiness to the sinfulness and depravity of man. Exodus 32 serves as a watershed moment in the storyline of God's word. A watershed moment of warning and simultaneously a watershed moment of hope. And it poses a necessary and important question that we must answer. What is the greatest threat to Christianity? What is it that we are fighting against? What is it that is the most difficulty that we will know in this world. In our day and age, we might be tempted to say that atheism is the greatest challenge that we face. It is a growing trend. Those who would say that they do not believe in God is a growing and multiplying part of our population. Who would say that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Some estimate that about one-third of America's population falls into this camp. Ever increasingly popular among the younger generations from my generation down are those who would say that they do not believe in God and have no religious affiliation whatsoever. We might say that this trend, this atheism, is the greatest threat and challenge that we face today as Christians. But as I read the Bible, this is never really a threat to God's people. Believers in the Bible are not having to contend against atheists. No, they are having to contend with pagans and with paganism. So I believe the greatest threat Christians face is that of paganism. It's that same cosmic battle of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it reframes actually the whole atheism argument. We do not see atheists as those who believe in no God. We see them as those who have replaced God with other gods. They are worshiping something or someone, and it is the creature rather than the creator. But secondly, and even more subtly, paganism is the greatest threat to Christianity because it's paganism that invades the human heart. 
The problem with the Israelites is the same problem that we face. It is one thing to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it is something entirely different to get Egypt out of the Israelites. So for us, it might be one thing for us to say that we are not of this world. In one sense, we have been brought out of this world of darkness, out of this world system of sin. We are separating ourselves from this world, but it is something entirely different to get the world out of us, to get the world out of our hearts, or to put it another way, it is one thing to remove ourselves from the pagans. It is something altogether different to get the paganism out of us. And this is too easily forgotten. Sometimes I fear that we believe it's just enough to be separated from the world, but paganism can run rampant in our hearts. We say all the things that we don't do. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. But what about your heart? What's going on in here? Maybe that is where paganism thrives because it faces no threat. The event in Exodus 32 is an archetypal event. That's a big word. It just means it is a foundational event to show us what usually happens over and over and over again. So this event is a pattern of idolatry. This is what it's like. If someone is going to fall into idolatry, if someone's going to fall into paganism, this is what it looks like. So what happens in Exodus 32 doesn't just stay in Exodus 32. It's what happens to everyone who wrestles with paganism, who wrestles with idolatry, who wrestles with getting the world out of their hearts. We need to be very careful here because as Christians, we are not idolaters, yet we are warned constantly in the Bible about idolatry. We are not those who worship other gods, but that is still a temptation. That is still something that we need to be warned about. And so would we hear the warning from these verses? And so what happens? What happens in us when we hear these events in Exodus 32? And what is this supposed to do in our hearts and minds? Well, number one this morning, and again, this is all that we'll get to. Number one, we are to be horrified by the savage nature of sin. We are to be horrified by the savage nature of sin. This is the great deception of paganism. It always promises the opposite of what is actually achieved. I'll say it again. Paganism always promises the opposite of what it actually achieves. So it promises to make you more human. It promises you fulfillment in your humanity. It promises a better life. It says, if you do this, you will truly be living. But it actually accomplishes the opposite. It doesn't make you more human. It makes you less human. 
It doesn't leave you satisfied and fulfilled, but rather empty and desperate. This is exactly because it only further confuses and obscures that you are one who is made in the image of God. This is what I mean by this word, savage. Sin does not give you control. It makes you out of control. Like a wild animal. Untamable. And as the, the scene has shifted from the top of Mount Sinai to the bottom, we find here an impatient people. Moses had gone up to the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. How long did they have to wait for him? When was he going to come down? Why was he delayed? What was taking so long? It appeared to them as if Moses wasn't coming back, and so they had to take matters into their own hands. Impatience should be a warning sign. This week, I was in a store, and I saw in that store a book called The Book of Patience, 250 Ways to Make Yourself More Patient. So I picked up the book, and I started to thumb through it. I didn't read through it because I didn't have time for that, but I thumbed through it at least. Here are some of the wisdom from this book, or the book of wisdom, to help you get more patience. It said, to be more patient, eat some sweets. Or, take a walk. Or, drink some water. Or, role play a patient person. So, we know you're impatient. Act like a patient person. And then, I got to the next one, and I knew that 250 ways to make yourself more patient. That was kind of stretching it. So the next one was eat some chocolate, which I thought eat some sweets, eat some chocolate. Seems like those would fall under the same category, but perhaps no. Are you a patient person? Do you remember that patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you get patience? Do you eat candy? One of them, I don't, did I say this? Tap your forehead? That was one of them too. I don't know if that makes you more patient. Patience is a gift from the Spirit of God who dwells in you. Patience is something that is a spiritual gift given by God in order to fight off sin. Impatience should be a warning sign. And so it should have been a warning sign for the Israelites. 
Sin was crouching at the door, waiting to overtake them, waiting to dominate them, and it saw its opportunity with impatience. But the impatience, the discontent quickly grew into an all-out battle. It says the people gathered themselves together against Aaron. That's the idea there in verse 1. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Very literally, it says they gathered themselves together against Aaron. In fact, that same phrase is used other times in Moses' writing in the book of Numbers. All those times, it's about getting together for battle. The people gathered themselves together as in they were going to battle. And so now, here are the people gathering themselves together. And what do they do? They're going to fight. And they're going to fight against Aaron. This is not a holy gathering of the church. This is an unholy gathering. doesn't matter that they had the name of Israelites stamped upon them. They still were deceived by sin and gathered themselves together in order to go against God and sin. They were determined. This does not excuse Aaron, but it does show their commitment to sin. They were going to get their way, and they were ready to fight. To get it. What happens when you become impatient? Well, impatience often leads to bitterness. Bitterness sometimes can lead to sadness or depression, but maybe then it just comes out in anger. You're angry because you don't get your own way. The Israelites are ready to fight to get their own way, and here are their demands. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. If you remember, just before this, Yahweh had called and commissioned Bezalel and Aholiab to make all the things necessary to build the temple. They were to imitate God by making, just as he had made at creation, so they were to make things for the tabernacle. This demand now, though, for Aaron to up and make for them gods is the exact opposite. It's not upholding the God who made everything, especially man in his own image. It's anti-creation language. It's denying the image of God and requesting another image to be made. It's the ultimate power play for control. Up, make us gods that we can control. We will be in charge of them. We will be the sovereign ones. And they attack the very sovereignty of God. Even though Yahweh had been going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them by his very own presence. They wanted gods of their own making to go before them and do what they wanted. They even deny the act of redemption. Do you see that there? Notice, it wasn't the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. It was Moses. They deny the Lord. It was a denial of the divine supernatural act of Yahweh on their behalf to bring them out of Egypt and free them from their bondage. Could it ever be that we are deceived into losing sight of the supernatural act of the gospel? Where God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life? 
Could it be that we lose sight of him who went before us, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who gave himself for us by bearing our sin in his body on that tree? Was it not supernatural that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead so that we might be released from our bondage to sin and death? How we are prone to sin if we lose sight of the supernatural work of the gospel which saves us. Do you think about that often? It took a supernatural divine act of the living God to save you. And don't think that somehow we might be different than the Israelites. Think for a moment, what had the Israelites seen? What had they experienced? They had experienced supernatural phenomena, the like that the world has never seen since this time. And yet how quickly, how quickly they have rejected it. Aaron does not fight back against the Israelite battalion. He capitulates to their sin. He gives expression to their demand. How will these gods be made? They will be made of gold. Where did the Israelites get the gold? Well, from the rings of gold that were on their wives, their sons, and their daughters. And it's somewhat of a gruesome scene here. It says, take off, or literally it could be said, tear out or break off the rings in their ears. Why this detail? Why these rings in their ears specifically? Weren't there other items of gold that they could have used in order to offer them up to make this idol? Perhaps, but earrings are specifically mentioned, I believe, because it is an ironic action. You see, ears in the Bible are associated with obedience. You hear the command and then you obey. One's obedience begins with the ear. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? Because the one who hears, the one who has spiritual ears to hear, will obey. So here, an ironic action because now they're taking these gold earrings out of their ears and they're giving them to this man who will make an idol. They are disobeying the Lord. Their ears should have been holy ears, ears dedicated to the Lord, but now they were to be defiled ears obeying their sinful flesh rather than the holy God. In this action of Aaron receiving all of these gold earrings from the people, we have another reminder of Israel's past. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, what did they do? They plundered the Egyptians. God gave the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians and the Egyptians were just giving them their gold, their silver, their clothing as they left the land. Now what's happening? The Israelites are being plundered. They're giving their gold for this idol. 
all of the gifts that God had given them, now they're using those very gifts to denounce God and use them for their own sinful pleasures. We could be prone to doing that too, couldn't we? Look at the gifts that God has given us. Will we ever use them for our own sinful and selfish pleasures rather than be using them for God and for His glory? Are you using the gifts that God has given you to herald His greatness and His goodness to the world? Are you seeking to use those gifts for His kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel in this world? Or are you using them for yourself? Maybe you're not even using them at all. It could be a particular spiritual gift. It could be your time. It could be your money. All used to deny God rather than worship Him. All used to worship something other than God, even yourself. Remember, the people were supposed to be giving contributions to the tabernacle. But now they're giving contributions to this idol so that it can be fashioned and formed by Aaron and that's what he does he fashions a golden calf or a young bull as he receives this gold it's then that we begin to see more clearly what is going on they want this golden calf that's being made to represent Yahweh They say, look to this idol as the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so it's this idol that they would offer sacrifices to. Aaron built an offer to, altar to it. And then Aaron makes this proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. Here is explicit indication that this golden calf is supposed to represent Yahweh because that is the name that Aaron uses. He takes the holy name of the Lord and profanes it by attaching it to this idolatrous image. Be careful what you put the Lord's name on. And look at what Aaron and the people are attempting to do here. They want to control the Lord and so bring the Lord into their presence rather than being brought into the Lord's presence by himself. They are trying to force God into their presence, make God do what they want. They've reversed it. They thought they could set the seal of approval for this pagan idol worship by having a feast. Let's solidify our worship of this idol by having a feast. Remember back in Exodus, Exodus 24, after the Lord gives the law, they have a feast with the Lord to ratify the covenant. They say, yes, we're confirming this covenant with the Lord, and so we're going to have a meal, we're going to have a feast. Also remember back in Exodus 12, as the people are coming out of Egypt, what does the Lord do? He establishes a feast. You will have a feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread to commemorate the redemption that I have purchased for you in bringing you out of Egypt. But now they have a feast. And what does this feast do? 
It celebrates the breaking of their covenant with the Lord. It celebrates the fact that they are destroying the relationship that God wants to have with them. They eat and they drink to disfellowship with the Lord rather than to fellowship with Him. This is an anti-feast to show they are still enslaved in their sin. So they rose early the next morning to worship. They offered sacrifices to their idols. They sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. This idea of rising up to play could be promiscuousness, licentiousness. It also has this idea of mocking. They rose up to play, in fact, to mock God. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And notice what their sin does. Their sin brings a restlessness to their lives. Their sin does not bring them peace. It does not bring them quiet. Their sin actually agitates them. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Yahweh had just been saying, I will give you rest. I will bring peace to your hearts and to your minds and to your souls. Are you ever agitated and restless in your heart and soul? Why is that? Because sin is wanting to take control. Sin is wanting to have its way. Our God is a God of peace. Our God is a God who brings quietness to our hearts and lives and minds. He doesn't agitate us. He doesn't make us restless. In fact, Augustine says that, oh Lord, let us find, let our restless souls find their rest in you. The Israelites were expressly breaking the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves an idol, nor worship, nor serve it. They were breaking the commands that God had given them. They were saying, we would rather have it our own way. We would rather be in control. The problem that plagued the Israelites is the same problem that plagues some today. It's the inability to see the spiritual world as primary and instead giving themselves to try to control the physical and visible world. The struggle is wanting to walk by sight and not by faith. What is it in your life? Is it wanting to control the physical and the visible? 
Is it depending more upon what you can see that will bring you peace? If you're waiting for what you see to make you feel better, to give you peace, you'll never find it. But if your faith is in the Lord, if your faith is in a God who controls everything, you can rest in His control rather than demand your own. Do we see the savage nature of sin? Do we see its ugliness? If we are truly horrified by sin, we will be convicted of it in our own lives. And just look for one moment at 1 Corinthians 10, 7. We'll end here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. First Corinthians 10, verse 7. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear brother or sister, Christian, you are not an idolater. Do not be deceived into thinking that somehow idols will bring some fulfillment to your soul and life. There's a song written by Charles Wesley who says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Behold, the dungeon flamed with light. Speaks of awaking from death. Beholding the beauty of the Lord and one's chains falling off and being free. Imagine for a moment someone being awakened from the dead, set free out of that prison, out of that dungeon, and then later demanding to get back in. What would you say? That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. You don't want to go back to the dungeon. You've been set free from the dungeon. Why would we ever go back and say, there's something there. The Lord had brought Israel out of the iron furnace. Why would they ever want to throw themselves back into the iron furnace? They shouldn't. And brother and sister, neither should we. You've been released. You've been free if you know Jesus Christ. Perhaps this morning, for the first time, you're awaking. Awaking from the dead. 
awaking to see that you are actually shackled and chained by your sins. And you see for the very first time that you need to be free. Jesus is the only one who can free you. He's the only one who can remove that sin that's holding you down, that's shackling you, that's keeping you dead, that's separating you from God. He's the only one who can remove that and give you life, who can take you out of the dungeon, who can bring you peace, who can restore your soul, who can give you eternal life. so that you'll never have to go back to the dungeon door wanting to get back in again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your holy word. Forgive us if there has been any time where we as your people have wanted to get back into the dungeon, wanted to get back into the iron furnace, thought that somehow... There is something that we're missing out on, something that we need that is apart from you. Father, let us not be deceived. Let us keep ourselves from idols and idolatry. Let us not set up anything else in our hearts that we would worship apart from you and you alone. And thank you that it is Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, that can set us free. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know Christ, who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that you would so stir their hearts with the truth of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. That they would see the horrific and savage nature of sin. And that they would run to you. And that their chains, sin would fall off. That they would be free. That they would say, I will follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads. Father, In this world, there are temptations. But no temptation has overtaken us. It is not common to man. You are faithful in the midst of our temptation to provide a way of escape. Let us not succumb in any way to idolatry. Let us run to you again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.